Section 36 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. Fourth Book, The World as Will, Section 62, Part 1. Section 62. It has already been explained that the first and simplest assertion of the will to live is only the assertion of one's own body, i.e., the exhibition of the will through acts in time, so far as the body, in its form and design, exhibits the same will in space and no further. This assertion shows itself as maintenance of the body by means of the application of its own powers. To it is directly related the satisfaction of the sexual impulse. Indeed, this belongs to it because the genitals belong to the body. Therefore, voluntary renunciation of the satisfaction of that impulse, based upon no motive, is already a denial of the will to live, is a voluntary self-suppression of it, upon the entrance of knowledge which acts as a quieter. Accordingly, such denial of one's own body exhibits itself as a contradiction by the will of its own phenomenon. For although here also the body objectifies in the genitals the will to perpetuate the species, yet this is not willed. Just on this account, because it is a denial or suppression of the will to live, such a renunciation is a hard and painful self-conquest, but of this later. But since the will exhibits that self-assertion of one's own body in innumerable individuals beside each other, it very easily extends in one individual, on account of the egoism peculiar to them all, beyond this assertion to the denial of the same will appearing in another individual. The will of the first breaks through the limits of the assertion of will of another, because the individual either destroys or injures this other body itself, or else because it compels the powers of the other body to serve its own will, instead of the will which manifests itself in that other body. Thus, if, from the will manifesting itself as another body, it withdraws the powers of this body, and so increases the power serving its own will beyond that of its own body. It consequently asserts its own will beyond its own body by means of the negation of the will appearing in another body. This breaking through the limits of the assertion of will of another has always been distinctly recognized and its concept denoted by the word wrong. For both sides recognize the fact instantly, not 
indeed, as we do here in distinct abstraction, but as feeling. He who suffers wrong feels the transgression into the sphere of the assertion of his own body, through the denial of it by another individual, as a direct and mental pain which is entirely separated and different from the accompanying physical suffering experienced from the act or the vexation at the loss. To the doer of wrong, on the other hand, the knowledge presents itself that he is in himself the same will which appears in that body also, and which asserts itself with such vehemence. The one phenomenon that, transgressing the limits of its own body and its powers, it extends to the denial of this very will in another phenomenon, and so, regarded as will in itself, it strives against itself by this vehemence and rends itself. Moreover, this knowledge presents itself to him instantly, not in abstracto, but as an obscure feeling. And this is called remorse, or, more accurately, in this case, the feeling of wrong committed. Wrong, the conception of which we have thus analyzed in its most general and abstract form, expresses itself in the concrete most completely, peculiarly, and palpably in cannibalism. This is its most distinct and evident type, the terrible picture of the greatest conflict of the will with itself at the highest grade of its objectification, which is man. Next to this, it expresses itself most distinctly in murder and therefore the committal of murder is followed instantly and with fearful distinctness by remorse, the abstract and dry significance of which we have just given, which inflicts a wound on our peace of mind that a lifetime cannot heal. For our horror at the murder committed, as also our shrinking from the committal of it, corresponds to that infinite clinging to life with which everything living, as phenomenon of the will to live, is penetrated. We shall analyze this feeling which accompanies the doing of wrong and evil, in other words, the pangs of conscience, more fully later on, and raise its concept to distinctness. Mutilation, or mere injury of another body, Indeed, every blow is to be regarded as, in its nature, the same as murder, and differing from it only in degree. Further, wrong shows itself in the subjugation of another individual, in forcing him into slavery, and, finally, in the seizure of another's goods, which, so far as these goods are regarded as the fruit of his labor, is just the same thing as making him a slave, and is related to this as mere injury is to murder. For property, which is not taken from a man without wrong, can, according to our explanation of wrong, only be that which has been produced by his own powers. 
therefore by taking this we really take the powers of his body from the will objectified in it to make them subject to the will objectified in another body for only so does the wrongdoer by seizing not the body of another but a lifeless thing quite different from it break into the sphere of the assertion of will of another person because the powers the work of this other body are as it were incorporated and identified with this thing it follows from this that all true i e moral right of property is based simply and solely on work as was pretty generally assumed before kant and is distinctly and beautifully expressed in the oldest of all codes of law wise men who know the past explain that a cultured field is the property of him who cut down the wood and cleared and ploughed it as an antelope belongs to the first hunter who mortally wounds it laws of manu nine forty four kant's philosophy of law is an extraordinary concatenation of errors all leading to each other and he bases the right of property upon first occupation to me this is only explicable on the supposition that his powers were failing through old age for how should the mere avowal of my will to exclude others from the use of a thing at once give me a right to it clearly such an avowal itself requires a foundation of right instead of being one as kant assumes and how would he act unjustly in say i e morally who does not respect that claim to the sole possession of a thing which is based upon nothing but its own avowal how should his conscience trouble him about it for it is so clear and easy to understand that there can be absolutely no such thing as a just seizure of anything but only a just conversion or acquired possession of it by spending our own original powers upon it when by any foreign labor however little a thing has been cultivated improved kept from harm or preserved even if this labor were only the plucking or picking up from the ground of fruit that has grown wild the person who forcibly seizes such a thing clearly deprives the other of the result of his labor expended upon it makes the body of this other serve his will instead of its own asserts his will beyond its own phenomenon to the denial of that of the other i e does injustice or wrong on the other hand the mere enjoyment of a thing without any cultivation or preservation of it from destruction gives just as little right to it as the mere avowal of our desire for its sole possession therefore though one family has hunted a district alone even for a hundred years but has done nothing for its improvement if a stranger comes and desires to hunt there 
it cannot prevent him from doing so without moral injustice. Thus the so-called right of preoccupation, according to which, for the mere past enjoyment of a thing, there is demanded the further recompense of the exclusive right to its future enjoyment, is morally entirely without foundation. A newcomer might with far better right reply to him who was depending upon such a right, just because you have so long enjoyed, it is right that others should now enjoy also. No moral right can be established to the sole possession of anything upon which labor cannot be expended, either in improving it or in preserving it from harm, unless it be through a voluntary surrender on the part of others as a reward for other services. This, however, already presupposes a community regulated by agreement, the state. The morally established right of property, as we have deduced it above, gives from its nature to the owner of a thing the same unlimited power over it which he has over his own body, and hence it follows that he can part with his possessions to others either in exchange or as a gift, and they then possess them with the same moral right as he did. As regards the doing of wrong generally, it occurs either through violence or through craft, it matters not which, as far as what is morally essential is concerned. First, in the case of murder, it is a matter of indifference whether I make use of a dagger or of poison, and the case of every bodily injury is analogous. Other cases of wrong can all be reduced to the fact that I, as the doer of wrong, compel another individual to serve my will instead of his own, to act according to my will instead of according to his own. On the path of violence I attain this end through physical causality, but on the path of craft by means of motivation, i.e. by means of causality through knowledge for I present to his will elusive motives, on account of which he follows my will, while he believes he is following his own. Since the medium in which the motives lie is knowledge, I can only accomplish this by falsifying his knowledge, and this is the lie. The lie always aims at influencing another's will, not merely his knowledge for itself and as such, but only as a means so far as it determines his will. For my lying itself, inasmuch as it proceeds from my will, requires a motive, and only the will of another can be such a motive, not his knowledge in and for itself for as such it can never have an influence upon my will, therefore it can never move it, can never be a motive of its aim. But only the willing and doing of another can be this, 
and his knowledge indirectly through it. This holds good not only of all lies that have manifestly sprung from self-interest, but also of those which proceed from pure wickedness, which seeks enjoyment in the painful consequences of the error into which it has led another. Indeed, mere empty boasting aims at influencing the will and action of others, more or less, by increasing their respect or improving their opinion of the boaster. The mere refusal of a truth, i.e., of an assertion generally, is in itself no wrong, but every imposing of a lie is certainly a wrong. He who refuses to show the strayed traveller the right road does him no wrong, but he who directs him to a false road certainly does. It follows from what has been said that every lie, like every act of violence, is as such wrong, because as such it has for its aim the extension of the authority of my will to other individuals, and so the assertion of my will through the denial of theirs, just as much as violence has. But the most complete lie is the broken contract, because here all the conditions mentioned are completely and distinctly present together. For when I enter into a contract, the promised performance of the other individual is directly and confessedly the motive for my reciprocal performance. The promises were deliberately and formally exchanged. The fulfillment of the declarations made is, it is assumed, in the power of each. If the other breaks the covenant, he has deceived me and by introducing merely illusory motives into my knowledge, he has bent my will according to his intention. He has extended the control of his will to another individual, and thus has committed a distinct wrong. On this is founded the moral lawfulness and validity of the contract. Wrong through violence is not so shameful to the doer of it as wrong through craft, for the former arises from physical power, which under all circumstances impresses mankind, while the latter, by the use of subterfuge, betrays weakness and lowers man at once as a physical and moral being. This is further the case because lying and deception can only succeed if he who employs them expresses at the same time horror and contempt of them in order to win confidence, and his victory rests on the fact that men credit him with honesty which he does not possess. The deep horror which is always excited by cunning, faithlessness, and treachery rests on the fact that good faith and honesty are the bond which externally binds into a unity the will which has been broken up into the multiplicity of individuals, and thereby limits the consequences of the egoism which results from that dispersion. 
faithlessness and treachery break this outward bond asunder and thus give boundless scope to the consequences of egoism in the connection of our system we have found that the content of the concept of wrong is that quality of the conduct of an individual in which he extends the assertion of the will appearing in his own body so far that it becomes the denial of the will appearing in the bodies of others we have also laid down by means of very general examples the limits at which the province of wrong begins for we have at once defined its gradations from the highest degree to the lowest by means of a few leading conceptions according to this the concept of wrong is the original and positive and the concept of right which is opposed to it is the derivative and negative for we must keep to the concepts and not to the words as a matter of fact there would be no talk of right if there were no such thing as wrong the concept right contains merely the negation of wrong and every action is subsumed under it which does not transgress the limit laid down above i e is not a denial of the will of another for the stronger assertion of our own that limit therefore divides as regards a purely moral definition the whole province of possible actions into such as are wrong or right whenever an action does not encroach in the way explained above on the sphere of the assertion of will of another denying it it is not wrong therefore for example the refusal of help to another in great need the quiet contemplation of the death of another from starvation while we ourselves have more than enough is certainly cruel and fiendish but it is not wrong only it can be affirmed with certainty that whoever is capable of carrying unkindness and hardness to such a degree will certainly also commit every wrong whenever his wishes demand it and no compulsion prevents it but the conception of right as the negation of wrong finds its principal application and no doubt its origin in cases in which an attempted wrong by violence is warded off this warding off cannot itself be wrong and consequently is right although the violence it requires regarded in itself and in isolation would be wrong and is here only justified by the motive i e becomes right if an individual goes so far in the assertion of his own will that he encroaches upon the assertion of will which is essential to my person as such and denies it then my warding off of that encroachment is only the denial of that denial and thus from my side is nothing more than the assertion of the will which essentially and originally appears in my body and is already implicitly expressed by the mere appearance of this body 
consequently, is not wrong, but right. That is to say, I have then a right to deny that denial of another with the force necessary to overcome it, and it is easy to see that this may extend to the killing of the other individual whose encroachment as external violence pressing upon me may be warded off by a somewhat stronger counteraction, entirely without wrong, consequently with right. For all that happens from my side lies always within the sphere of the assertion of will essential to my person as such, and already expressed by it, which is the scene of the conflict, and does not encroach on that of the other, consequently is only negation of the negation, and thus affirmation, not itself negation. Thus, if the will of another denies my will, as this appears in my body and the use of its powers for its maintenance, without denial of any foreign will which observes a like limitation, I can, without wrong, compel it to desist from such denial, i.e., I have so far a right of compulsion. In all cases in which I have a right of compulsion, a complete right to use violence against another, I may, according to the circumstances, just as well oppose the violence of the other with craft without doing any wrong, and accordingly I have an actual right to lie precisely so far as I have a right of compulsion. Therefore a man acts with perfect right who assures a highway robber who is searching him that he has nothing more upon him, or if a burglar has broken into his house by night, induces him by a lie to enter a cellar and then locks him in. A man who has been captured and carried off by robbers, for example by pirates, has the right to kill them not only by violence but also by craft, in order to regain his freedom. Thus also a promise is certainly not binding when it has been extorted by direct bodily violence, because he who suffers such compulsion may with full right free himself by killing, and a fortiori by deceiving his oppressor. Whoever cannot recover through force the property which has been stolen from him commits no wrong if he can accomplish it through craft. Indeed, if someone plays with me for money he has stolen from me, I have the right to use false dice against him, because all that I win from him already belongs to me. Whoever would deny this must still more deny the justifiableness of stratagem in war, which is just an acted lie, and is a proof of the saying of Queen Christina of Sweden, The words of men are to be esteemed as nothing, scarcely are their deeds to be trusted. So sharply does the limit of right border upon that of wrong. For the rest, I regard it as superfluous to show that all this completely agrees with what was said above about the unlawfulness of the lie and of violence. 
it may also serve to explain the peculiar theory of the lie told under pressure. In accordance with what has been said, wrong and right are merely moral determinations, i.e., such as are valid with regard to the consideration of human action as such, and in relation to the inner significance of this action in itself. This asserts itself directly in consciousness through the fact that the doing of wrong is accompanied by an inward pain, which is the merely felt consciousness of the wrongdoer of the excessive strength of the assertion of will in itself, which extends even to the denial of the manifestation of the will of another, and also the consciousness that although he is different from the person suffering wrong as far as the manifestation is concerned, yet in himself he is identical with him. The further explanation of this inner significance of all pain of conscience cannot be given till later. He who suffers wrong is, on the other hand, painfully conscious of the denial of his will, as it is expressed through the body and its natural requirements, for the satisfaction of which nature refers him to the powers of his body. And at the same time he is conscious that, without doing wrong, he might ward off that denial by every means unless he lacks the power. This purely moral significance is the only one which right and wrong have for men as men, not as members of the state, and which consequently remains even when man is in a state of nature without any positive law. It constitutes the basis and the content of all that has on this account been named natural law, though it is better called moral law, for its validity does not extend to suffering, to the external reality, but only to the action of man and the self-knowledge of his individual will which grows up in him from his action and which is called conscience. It cannot, however, in a state of nature, assert itself in all cases and outwardly upon other individuals, and prevent might from reigning instead of right. In a state of nature it depends upon every one merely to see that in every case he does no wrong, but by no means to see that in every case he suffers no wrong, for this depends on the accident of his outward power. Therefore the concepts right and wrong even in a state of nature, are certainly valid and by no means conventional, but there they are valid merely as moral concepts, for the self-knowledge of one's own will in each. They are a fixed point in the scale of the very different degrees of strength with which the will to live asserts itself in human individuals, like the freezing point on the thermometer. The point at which the assertion of one's own will becomes the denial of the will of another, i.e., specifies through wrongdoing the degree of its intensity, combined with the degree in which knowledge is involved in the principium individuationis, 
which is the form of all knowledge that is subject to the will. But whoever wants to set aside the purely moral consideration of human action, or denies it, and wishes to regard conduct merely in its outward effects and their consequences, may certainly, with Hobbes, explain right and wrong as conventional definitions arbitrarily assumed, and therefore not existing outside positive law. And we can never show him through external experience what does not belong to such experience. Hobbes himself characterizes his completely empirical method of thought very remarkably by the fact that in his book De Principiis Geometrarum he denies all pure mathematics properly so called, and obstinately maintains that the point has extension and the line has breadth, and we can never show him a point without extension or a line without breadth. Thus we can just as little impart to him the a priori nature of mathematics as the a priori nature of right, because he shuts himself out from all knowledge which is not empirical. End of Fourth Book, The World as Will, Section 62, Part 1